Welcome to CouncilCast from the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. I'm Sandy Laycox, Associate Managing Editor of Leaders Edge Magazine. I'm joined today by Kevin Kalinich, Global Practice Leader for Cyber and Network Risk at Aon. We'll be discussing the proliferation of cyber regulations being pushed out both in the U.S. and abroad, with a particular focus on the global data protection regulation coming out of the U.K. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. I really appreciate you taking the time at such short notice to have this conversation with me. Sure. So the way we take a look at cyber exposures and solutions, including cyber regulations, is to focus on priorities from a financial statement impact basis. So from a financial statement impact um, basis, the 48 United States data breach disclosure laws do not impose monetary penalties. They require companies to respond and notify affected customers and third parties within a uh, prescribed time period. The bigger regulations that are coming to effect now, including the European Union General Data Protection Regulation and the New York uh, Cybersecurity uh, Department of Financial Services, impose specific fines and penalties that could be very material. So the EU GDPR could impose fines and penalties of up to 2% to 4% of a company's worldwide revenue. 2 to 4% of a company that has billions of dollars in revenues is material under any definition of materiality. And the same would be true for private companies. Therefore, compliance with the EU GDPR is becoming a top priority. The compliance with the EU GDPR is more on a macro level enterprise risk management, and it has to include management setting a culture that employees must understand what their culture is with respect to cyber uh, resilience. And it's no longer just an IT security issue. The big question is, from our standpoint, though, if those fines and penalties are imposed, number one, is that really the the extent they're going to impose them? Are they really going to impose fines to to potentially put companies out of business? And two, are those fines and penalties insurable? Well, the time clock is ticking. It's May 25th, 2018, when the enforcement can, can begin. So what we've tried to do is to put insurance policies together that state the insurance companies agree to pay the fines and penalties to the fullest extent allowable under law in the jurisdiction most favorable to the insured. So that sounds good if you're the uh, insured, right? So you have Mm -hmm. company XYZ, you may be operating in five different jurisdictions in, in Europe or all of them. And this also applies worldwide. So it applies to companies in the United States to the extent that they have um, customers in Europe or if they have personally identifiable information of customers in Europe, it still would apply to them. What hasn't been determined yet is the country by country interpretation of whether those fines and penalties are insurable. So if they get fined um, a $25 million fine or $50 million fine, in um, Germany, in Spain, in Italy, in UK, are those fines insurable? And the best we can do right now is to get 
put that language in the insurance policies to stay to the fullest extent allowed by law in the jurisdiction most favorable, but it still is a, a gray area. We've reached out to law firms that have given us different interpretations. Some of the law firms think that based on prior um, fines and penalties in other areas, it may be insurable, and other law firms have said they don't think it would be insurable. Therefore, you go back to the focus on more of a macro-level holistic approach of cyber resiliency in going step-by-step step through the regulations to comply with those policies and procedures. Is management involved? Do you have an incident response plan? Do you have a written plan? And the good news for the EU GDPR is it's um, so comprehensive that it can also help you satisfy some of the um, other 2018 regulatory requirements such as the uh, New York Department of Financial Services, which is another one that you had um, mentioned. The, re the reason we didn't start with that is because that is a little bit more narrow because it applies to, you know, quote unquote, covered entities in financial institutions um, such as banking law, insurance law, or financial services. And it doesn't apply to all uh, entities in all um, industries and geographies. Right. However, that law went into effect in the first certification of compliance um, with that regulation was due February 15th, um, 2018, so it already is um, in effect. The reason we I didn't respond so in breadth and depth to your questions on that and why um, I, I, I it could become significant, but why it's not top priority or top um, from a key performance indicator standpoint yet is that it has to be adopted by the states in order for it to become effective. So it's still a little bit futuristic. Right, right. So, in which makes total sense in, in thinking about the GDPR as the much more wide, you know, sweeping kind of regulation that that's in play right now. Um, how are you, so, so with these clients who are, who will be affected by this, which is, I'm assuming a lot of them, you talked about, um, you know, changing the culture and can you talk a little bit about, about this, what you're doing and how you're advising clients in this way and this sort of risk prevention, uh, approach? Sure. I'm going to compare and contrast other approaches that are not necessarily wrong, but different. A company that's in the business of hardware is going to say, you want to buy our hardware because we have better cybersecurity and we can reduce your cyber risk. A company in the software business is gonna say, our software can reduce your cyber risk, so you should buy our software. The same is true for encryption, antivirus software, intrusion detection. All of those aspects are important with respect to IT security and reducing cyber risk. But what you see is each one of those is one element out of a hundred elements. So our approach is to say, okay, encryption is important, antivirus software is important. The router, you know, the hardware is important. The antivirus software is important. However, you need to look at all of them holistically on an enterprise level to determine what is the maximum utility you can receive from allocating your limited resources into each one of those areas. Should you buy antivirus software? Yes, but you spend all of your budget on that. What is the return you get for it? Should you spend all of your budget on encryption? Instead, you have to take a look at what has caused the biggest financial statement impact? What has caused companies to 
um, what has caused companies to have their business interrupted uh, and their computer systems down so they can't do their um, operate in the supply chain? What has caused companies to have large breaches that have caused them to suffer um, fines? So we take a much more macro level approach to say, okay, here are 50 elements or 100 different elements that may impact your cyber resiliency. What is the frequency of severity of those particular elements? And some of them, I'll give you specific examples, are very basic. If you take a look at the NotPetya um, mm -hmm. event that happened in 2017, many of the entities that suffered from NotPetya either had outdated uh, software in their systems or they didn't keep up to date with patches. And if you take a look at some of the patches that had been available for months, these large companies, Fortune 1000 companies, hadn't um, yet implemented those patches. And now if you take a look at their publicly disclosed financial statement impact, the financial statement impact of five, six, seven, eight companies is over 200 to $300 million. So that's the approach we take. What could be the financial statement impact to you know, Maersk, the shipping company, or um, FedEx, you know, T TNT Express was their subsidiary, or Mondelez International, the food company, or Reckitt Bensiker, the um, um, food uh, supply company in um, the uh, EMEA. Similarly, the same type of approach we would take for uh, companies that got hit in the United States with massive losses in 2017, such as Equifax. Where should they, what are the lessons learned and where should they have allocated their resources um, for compliance to mitigate the chance of a, a frequent and severe type of exposure? And so is, is the thinking that by looking at all of these uh, sort of across the board in this holistic level, you're going to, it's going to help you at the same time be sort of checking off that checklist of compliance with GDPR? Exactly right, but I'd go a, further, a step further. Um, I, I like your um, wording with respect to um, checklist as a start, but as long as your checklist includes what is the potential financial statement impact from a frequency and severity standpoint. So, for instance, you could say, okay, we need to have encryption, but is encryption going to be the one that gets the biggest uh, cost-benefit analysis return, you know, return on that investment, or is training employees to not click on phishing um, emails. So that quantitative analysis of the financial statement impact has to be incorporated into the checklist. So the reason we stay a little bit away from the word checklist is checklist implies that you are, each one of those uh, factors that you're addressing are equal, and each one of those factors are not equal. There are some factors that are much more important in for instance, segregating your most important data assets. So even if um, bad guys get into your system, your most important assets are segregated so they don't get to the most important assets, for example. Um, and so that, that frequency, severity, cost-benefit analysis has to factor into your checklist. Makes sense. How are your clients responding to this? Can you give us any insights there? So, so obviously, we can't use um, the names of specific um, clients. Sure. Correct. Um, right. So I'll give you a, a little bit longer, probably, answer than you're looking for. 
as of December 31st, 2016, okay, December 31st, 2016, there had only been seven cyber incidents that have been considered quote unquote material. How do we know that? Because that's how many incidents were notified to the Securities and Exchange Commission as quote unquote material. In 2017, there were nine new incidents that were reported as material under publicly disclosed documents. So that tells you that the awareness and education of uh, our clients has grown tremendously. However, because of the size and complexity of many of these clients, the time it takes to implement best practices on a company-wide scale can take years. Take, for example, again, the Fortune 1000 companies that were uh, affected by NotPetya. They, they may have had five or six acquisitions in 2017. So even if their main systems were strong and were cyber resilient, those acquired companies don't automatically get implemented into their new systems on day one when on the effective date of their merger. So they have to practice the same cyber resiliency to bring those other legacy systems up to speed. So our clients, the awareness and education has risen tremendously. The execution though is just starting where it probably should have started years ago. So it's gonna take years for them to get into full compliance. And that's true of the EU GDPR. We have not had one client tell us that they are, could be 100% compliant by May 25th, 2018. So what is AN advising? AN's advising to show how they are compliant and what steps they are taking to be compliant and how they're addressing each one of the issues. Because if you look at the EU GDPR fines and penalties, it's a little bit different than the US. Their fines and penalties are predicated on were you compliant from a processing um, standpoint and guideline standpoint? Did you have procedures in place to address these? If their fines and penalties are not predicated on the size of a cyber breach, mm -hmm. um, like they are in the United States. So the compliance and the, the evidence of what steps you're taking is very EU GDPR. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, you you wrote an article that discussed the added benefits uh, for a company in being compliant with GDPR, you know, ranging from company cost efficiency to help with mergers and acquisitions. Can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. If an entity culture is set from the top, then you can have a coordinated, unified approach, which means everybody is following the same policies and procedures. So separate, separate and apart from the fines and penalties, if everybody is coordinated, that can create tremendous efficiencies in the sales process, in the supply chain process, in risk mitigation process. So again, separate and apart from the cyber regulatory compliance, you can create efficiencies in each one of your procedures in working with uh, other, other colleagues in your organization to understand which data are we permitted to access, which data is prohibited from accessing. How do we use that data? And when a company starts becoming more unified and in, in, um, use more coordination for their collaboration, a company can become much more efficient instead of reinventing the wheel from one department to another department to another department. Can you discuss how 
you touched on the fact that you're looking at insurance solutions for um, companies you know, working under TDPR and, and other cyber rules. Can you discuss how this compliance and risk uh, prevention strategy helps uh, gain them better insurance solutions? Are they looked upon more favorably uh, from a risk standpoint? Um, great question, and the, the answer is going to be a little bit more complex with caveats. Here's why. There are, there are now 75 different cyber insurers that AON has placed cyber primary insurance with, which means 75 different applications, 75 different underwriting processes, and 75 different policy wordings. The, some of the most experienced cyber insurers, such as AIG, Beasley, uh, XL, what they've done is they stay ahead of the game and take into account, are you in compliance with each one of these new regulations? If you're not in compliance, how are you not in compliance and how does that affect your financial statement? They take into account those regulations and they require you to address um, any shortcomings you may have with respect to such compliance. Some of the newer entrants for the um, in cyber insurance writing are trying to grow their revenue and are trying to grow their um, book of business, so they might have to compromise on some of the requirements under the um, due diligence. So it's not a uh, one-size-fits-all approach. Some of the more um, experienced insurers are taking into account the new regulations and requiring um, that they be addressed whereas some of the newer entrants into cyber insurance are trying to win business, and so they may have to um, take some shortcuts on um, compliance with some of the regulations. So it sounds like there's a lot of different options out there at this point. A lot of different <laughs> options out there, and it, and, and it very much depends upon the objectives and priorities and the key performance indicators of an, of an insured, of the entity. Is it really important that they get an experienced insurer that already knows where the bodies are buried. They already have had experience with claims. Or are they just trying to look for their lowest premium um, possible? And all of those different um, criteria are, are actually reasonable criteria to consider, take under consideration, and you have to figure out what works best for your organization. So flipping gears quickly, I just wanted to, you mentioned the New York law and the NAIC model law. Mm -hmm. I just would love to hear your thoughts on what you think might take hold here <laughs> and um, if you think the GDPR will have any effect on U.S. Uh, regulation. So we already know that the New York State Department of Financial Services um, cybersecurity requirements are taking hold because they, they, the first certification of compliance was due February 15, 2018. Um, the one of the problems with it is, though, is it's a state law for the financial institutions that are doing business in New York. What happens if other states have different um, laws that have different requirements? Then do we have to have 50 different criteria that you have to meet if you're an institution, which can become overburdensome? Whereas the National Association of Insurance Commissioners um, when they uh, approved their insurance data security model law, hopefully that would eliminate some of the differences between states if they adopt the um, model law, um, which is obviously much 
easier from a compliance standpoint for um, not just financial institutions but all the other uh, all the other businesses. None of no no company has been fined yet or um, have hit an injunction under the New York State Department of Financial Services. So this interview is timely. This is a dynamic and fluid area, uh, Sandy, where it's changing rapidly, and we could have this interview again in three months, um, and we'd have a little bit better insight into how is the uh, New York State Department of Financial Services going to enforce that law. Anything else that you um, you think we should know about that we haven't touched on? Sure. Um, on February 21st, 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission issued updated guidance to public companies with respect to their disclosure requirements. There had been an initial October 2011 guidance with respect to disclosures, but we think that the February 2018 updated guidance will encourage companies to give much more disclosure information in their 10Ks and 8Ks with respect to what they're doing to protect against cyber exposures. Mm -hmm. So, so look, maybe looking at that as we as we look forward and keeping tabs on what's going on there uh, would be an interesting place to see what happens. And the reason that's an interesting place um, to analyze is because theoretically that disclosure should take into account all of a company's compliance with all the worldwide regulations that might apply to that company. So it, theoretically, they should mention the New York State Department of Financial Services regulation. It should mention the NAIC model law. It should mention the EU GDPR. And it should say whether the uh, entity thinks that those regulations apply to it, how does it apply to it, what is the company doing to mitigate the exposures to those regulations, and then finally, are they buying insurance that is adequate to cover uh, potential liability if um, if there was liability from one of those cyber exposures? Well, we will keep tabs on that. I really appreciate you talking with us about this, and um, you know, as you mentioned, this is a, a very fluid topic. So perhaps we can catch back up with you again in a few months. Sure. Sounds good. Net, we'll, we'll wait for the next cyber event. There, all you have to do is wait a week or two and there'll be some another big cyber event and then we can see what the fallout is. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for joining us for CouncilCast from the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. And for more on cyber regulations, check out our cover article in the April 2018 Leader's Edge. Until next time, be sure to follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates. We're at the CIAB and don't forget at Leaders Edge Mag.